In your mind, what does a hero look like? What kind of a person is the hero? I love watching those old Western movies. You know, when there's a a crisis, a problem, maybe some outlaw or band of outlaws has some town under their thumb, and then out from the desert rides the man with no name, or something like that. Okay? We have in our mind what a hero looks like. And in regards to many subjects of life, we have in our mind's eye what something looks like. You know what we call those pictures? Well, it's kind of changed the metaphor. We call them boxes. We have in our mind this idea of what something looks like, a hero. A hero is going to be the person who rides in and saves the day and perhaps doesn't make any demands on me, but he just does what's good because it's for right goodness sake, and then he goes away with no interference on my life. Or we have an idea of what it looks like, say, to be, to be free. What does freedom look like? So we put all these, category, all these ideas into these categories and label them. Hero box. Freedom box. And then in our inner life, we have ideas of what does it look like if someone loves me? Oh, how many times I've counseled someone or talked to someone who is sure that they are unloved because their idea of what love looks like isn't what they're seeing. So we have all these boxes that we fill with all these ideas, and you know what? We love presenting them onto Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the one who's going to sort of jive with whatever I have in these boxes. And one of the realities we learn in Scripture is that God loves thwarting our expectations. You've long ago heard probably, don't put God in boxes. And you know what we mean by that. Don't act like you have God all figured out and that you have this idea of the right way that, to, to work or, or this, is what God, this is how God works. This is what God does. We don't want to put God in boxes, but yet we do just like we put everything else. And so in this passage, we see God coming out of the gate, thwarting the expectations of everyone around him. So who is Jesus? He's the one who doesn't meet our expectations. He's the one who meets our needs because our needs oftentimes run counter to what we think. This passage here contains two of the most pivotal events in Jesus' life, his baptism and his temptation. His baptism is recorded in all four of the Gospels, and his temptation is recorded in, in addition to Mark here, Matthew, and Luke. It's crucial what happens here. And so that's what we're going to look at today, because together, What we see by looking at this passage is that the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah, has an unexpected identity. And flowing from that, we see that the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, has an unexpected mission. 
And they all point back to our unexpected problem. So that's why we're looking only at these few verses today. So let's look first at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. In those days. That's how verse 9 begins. What what are the days that it's referring to? Well, the the days that were were talked about in verses 7 and 8. In the days in which John the Baptist was ministering. So most likely in the height of his ministry. We talked last week about how John the Baptist was a really big deal. How even decades later, the apostles were running into people who were disciples of John. Okay, John the Baptist was a big deal. He was the first prophet to come on the scene in hundreds of years. And so his presence and his ministry was causing an excited uproar. Where was it causing an excited uproar? Specifically, according to these other verses? Well, in verse 5, in all the country of Judea and Jerusalem. Okay. So John the Baptist's ministry is located in Judea, the region of Judea, outside the city of Jerusalem. The Holy Land at that time, Israel, was divided into three basic regions. There was the region of Galilee in the north, and by region, think loosely of states, okay? Like, Like a modern U.S. state, not quite that firm of a legal divide, but very distinct regions. There was Galilee in the north. In the middle was the Samaria, which was kind of no man's land. It was a bad place. And then in the south was Judea. So Samaria is the flyover country. And Judea, because of the presence of the capital city of Jerusalem, it was where all the intelligentsia were. It's where, you know, the social fabric of Israel was there in Judea. All the important places, all the important people were there in Judea. And so it's no surprise then that when John the Baptist comes, he comes to where the happening place is. And that he causes a stir amongst all the important people. And then, verse 9 says, in those days, while John the Baptist is causing a stir amongst all the intelligentsia, Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee. All right. That's just a sentence we read and, and make nothing of it. But understand that in the minds of the first century Jew, the region of Galilee was like, I don't know, Think of whatever state you want to think of where you wouldn't associate anything good coming out of. For you, it may be Alabama. It may be Arkansas. Maybe West Virginia. Or you know, maybe it's Iowa. I don't know. Okay, whatever it is. Just, just imagine. So he comes from Galilee, which is the place from out in left field. And what's more, he comes from some little podunk town called Nazareth. And you get the cultural idea surrounding Nazareth when in John 1 it records even the words of one of his soon-to-be disciples when he's told Jesus is from Nazareth. And what does Nathanael say in John 1? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The whole idea here is that 
while all the focus and all the hubbub was in the cultural center of influence, here comes some guy riding in on a horse with no name from out of left field, from the backwaters of Hebrew society, and he's the one who's coming. Now, if you had asked what, where, where did they get these conceptions? Well, why would they have thought Nazareth was a podunk place? Why would, you, why would Nazareth be considered the backwaters? We don't know. But you know what? So often many of us have irrational notions of other people and places. We're so sure of the kind of person or the kind of thing that God will use. They had a very clear idea of the kind of man who would be the Messiah. I mean, we've all read, we've been in Sunday school a day or two. What kind of Messiah were they expecting? A great military leader. You know, or at least a profound respected teacher, you know, maybe a, maybe a savvy politician, but sort of wrapped up into that, there was the idea of military leader. And God's immediately thwarting all their expectations by sending some guy from the backwaters of their society. So just like last week, we learned there's a lesson to be learned even from Mark's own story. Here there's a lesson to be learned. Wherever it is you think you got your conceptions, hold them loosely because God loves shattering our expectations. He loves doing the unexpected. He loves showing us that we are not as awesome and all-knowing and all-whatever as we think we are. And He does it simply by pointing out that His Son came from where they were not looking. A simple man comes from the back country and he's going to be the savior of the world. That's pretty incredible. You never know who God is going to use. Maybe it's you. Have you looked around this church and seen the needs that we have? And you may be wondering, where's our help going to come from? Could it be that from out of left field, God is calling you? Just a thought. Just a thought. So he comes in verse 9, and he's baptized. That's a big deal. In fact, the fact of his baptism has caused a lot of ink to be spilled. Why? Because it says that John's baptism is a baptism of what? Repentance. <gasps> Jesus is baptized? Why would Jesus, the sinless one, need to be baptized? I mean, here, there's no comment made. John's point is simply to get us to what happens immediately following the baptism. But, you know, in, uh, in, in Matthew, John actually says, I should be baptizing you, or you should be baptizing me. And what does Jesus say? It's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Why is it necessary? <clears throat> it's a fair question. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? Well, this is where we're talking Christology here. The doctrine of Christ. 
At his baptism, Jesus starts his earthly ministry. The whole Christian church, all the way back to Acts 1, understands that his earthly ministry begins at his baptism. So in Acts 1, for example, when they are trying to find a replacement for Judas, they stand up and Peter says, okay, we need to find someone who's been with us since when? Since he was baptized. The baptism of Jesus starts his earthly ministry. Now that does not mean that everything before that baptism was unimportant. If Jesus' life before his baptism wasn't important, he wouldn't have need to have lived it. Before his baptism, what he was doing was living as one of us. So teens, he knows what it's like to have irritating parents. He knows what it's like to have an unreasonable boss. He knows what it's like to have neighbors that won't be quiet in the middle of the night. He knows what it's like to have unfair taxes. Okay? He lived his life. And what he was doing in that 30 years approximate life before his baptism was proving by his every minute and every day that he was keeping the law. So he was earning all the righteousness that he's going to give to you and me by faith. But at the point of his baptism, he's now lived his life. He's now, he's now uh, reached the point where his earthly ministry is time to begin. And so his saving ministry begins at his baptism. Now in the council of the Trinity, in eternity past, the members of the Trinity had agreed what's called the, the covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption. And the Son agreed to take on Himself the sins of all those whom God the Father would give to Him. And this was agreed upon in the past. But in the historic moment of the baptism of Jesus, what we have then is the Son of God who has become man stepping up and functionally accepting the mantle, affirming His intent to fulfill in human history the covenant that was made in eternity past. And so, since the Son of God came to redeem a sinful people, a people who desperately needed this baptism of repentance because they are vile, wretched sinners, Jesus Himself, though He was not sinful of His own self, He needed to be baptized to take on Himself the repentance that we can never give. Have you thought about how many times we go through life repenting of things? We say we're sorry. We do a great big repentance when we come to Jesus and, and the rest of our lives are these little small acts of repentance. You know why we have to keep doing that? Because we cannot turn perfectly from sin unto God. Because of our sinful nature... And the sin and the struggles that we have, we can never repent perfectly from sin. But that's exactly what the baptism of John was calling people to do. Turn from your sin, period. But we can't do that. We have to repent of our imperfect repentances. And so we desperately need someone who can do what we can't. And so as his first mediatorial act where he mediates and he's going to act as our 
federal head, if we want to use covenant theology language. He's going to act as our representative. He engages in the perfect act of repentance on behalf of us as sinful people that we can never do. And so, it is in light of that that after he comes out of the water, he immediately hears the words of approval. And we have this glorious, glorious revelation of the Trinity. I mean, artists throughout history have labored to try to depict for us the scene here. Jesus coming out of the water. The, vo- the heavens opening and the voice from heaven and the, and, and, and the Spirit descending like a dove. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit became a bird but that it was some physical manifestation of the Spirit that as they were looking at it, hey, that looks like a dove. I mean, sort of gently descending down on Jesus, not streaking down like a bolt of lightning, but just, so it's this beautiful, amazing scene. And we have here the confirmation from God's own mouth that this is my son. And I'm pleased with him. Now, verse 10 is important. Because it says that Jesus heard a voice and Jesus saw. Mark is not saying that other people didn't hear. In fact, in John chapter 1, we have John the Baptist giving his testimony of what he saw and heard. But here it's important, it's noting that Jesus saw and heard. That may seem to be a small little detail, but here's why I think it's important. Every single denial of Christian truth regarding Christ and his claims all boils down to the fact that they say Jesus never claimed to be God. He saw himself as a doer of good, and it was his later disciples that made him out to be something more than he thought he was. So whether it's the Jews themselves, whether it's Islam whether it's the advent of modern liberalism or whether it's expressions of blasphemy like like the pop culture movie uh, The Last Temptation of Christ with Willem Dafoe. All of it has in common Jesus was not God and he never claimed to be. It was these disciples. But what this passage does is it lets you know, hey, when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water and the voice from heaven spoke identifying him as the Son... Jesus was aware of it. Jesus didn't have water in his eyes, you know, from coming out of the water. He wasn't getting water out of his ears. He was aware. So Jesus and his ministry are done with the full cognizance that he is operating with the Father's approval. So don't say Jesus didn't know. Don't believe those. Those are bogus lies. Jesus was fully aware, and he repeats it throughout his ministry. But then there's something fantastic that happens here. In verse 10, we see the Holy Spirit coming down, and, and, and this is often depicted in, in, uh, in pictures you know, with, with maybe the clouds parting and like a beam of light coming down. It's beautiful. But what does the passage actually say? What did he see? Did he see the clouds parting? It says he saw the heavens being torn open. We don't know what it looked like for the heavens to be torn open. 
But we do know that it's, a, that it's an idiom that was used in the Old Testament. Anytime something is torn open, especially the heavens, it's a cataclysmic, epoch-changing event. Something of incredible significance. And so there are allusions here to Isaiah 64.1 when the prophet prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And what do we have here in verse 10? The heavens being torn open and the Spirit coming down. So this happens on the one side of Jesus' ministry. Right here at the beginning, the heavens are being torn open and the Spirit's coming down, signifying that something of cataclysmic importance is happening. But this is not the only time in the Gospel of Mark that we read of something being torn. There's a second time. In fact, right at the end of Jesus' life, right as he gives up his spirit, in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, Brother Bill, would you please read 1538? Another tearing. The heavens are torn open at his baptism, and the temple veil is torn at his death. Now, when he comes out of the waters and the heavens are torn open, we have the Father saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We have the Father identifying Jesus as the Son. And then in Mark chapter 15, right after the veil of the temple is torn, in the very next verse in 39 we read, Okay, so Jesus' earthly ministry is bracketed by something being torn, followed by an acclamation of his identity as the Son of God. His whole saving life is done under the operating notion that something fantastic and epoch-changing is happening here. Nothing will ever be the same because God has come in the flesh, has assumed the mantle of mediating uh, covenant representative, and he has committed to saving his people. And so how we relate to God is forever changed. And when he dies, we get the same confirmation bracketing it on the other end. Everything is different. And so, we're busy thinking that our biggest need is to find something or someone that can save us from all these things. And out of left field comes this man who suddenly becomes anointed on our behalf. And the Spirit anointing him is not granting Jesus the superpowers he needs to do his miracles. No, he has that. It's just, it's, it's good old-fashioned you are now anointed for this role. That's, that's all over the Old Testament, the whole notion of being anointed. You have been set apart. You have been commissioned. And oh yeah, anointed? Anointed one? That's just where we get 
That's the English form of Messiah. So the Messiah, who was anointed by the Spirit, declared to be the Son of God, is this guy who just comes out of nowhere. And so, our great Savior has a mighty unexpected identity. Not a great conquering hero, not a wise sage philosopher, but rather a simple carpenter coming from the back country of Hebrew society. But oh, his coming changes everything. And so our idea of the kind of person we need to save us is challenged. But so too is our understanding of the mission. You see, now that Jesus has been declared to be the Messiah, he's been anointed by the Spirit, there's a lot of people, they had to get their mind around that. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. He's from left field. He's not the kind of person we thought, but he's the Messiah. And so they had a very clear understanding about of what the business of the Messiah was to do and be. If you asked any first century Jew what their major problem in life was, you know what they would say? Rome. Roman occupation. That's our biggest problem. And the mission of the Messiah, I mean, they all would have said pretty much the same thing, is the Messiah's job is to kick out the foreigners and inaugurate a blessed nation-state in which we can live in the blissful uh, days like, like when King David and Solomon were reigning, as an autonomous nation-state where we're free to be Jews without foreign oppression. That's the job of the Messiah. And how remarkably short-sighted. The work of the Savior came to do so much more. But our problem is that we, we're not much different than the Jews of the first century, really. Because if you ask many of us, many of our neighbors, many of our friends and relatives, what's the biggest problem we're facing? I mean, you'll get a range of answers. You know, poverty is the biggest problem. Lack of education. Inadequate health care. Uh, distribution of wealth. Overpopulation. Some people would say religion is the biggest problem. Okay, there's all these problems that we think is the biggest problem. And what we do when we have an idea of what the problem is, is we wrap our mind around what we think the right cure is. And so for people who think that the biggest problem is racism, well, you have, or class oppression, you have the development of something called liberation theology. Or for people who think that the biggest problem is, is gender inequality, you have feminist theology. And st- people construe the Savior and his mission in accordance with what they think the problem is. And once again, God, God thwarts our expectations. And so we read in verse 12 that immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but I've often thought that, you know, Jesus is in the desert or in the wilderness being tempted and that he got there because, you know, maybe he went out there to, med- to meditate and he's wandering around and the devil sees an opportunity and attacks him or something. Or, or maybe he's, you know, he, he's not from that area anyway, so maybe he got lost and he found himself in the desert and the devil j- jumps on him. That's not what it says at all. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Drives him. Did you know that that's 
the exact same word that's used when Jesus drives demons out of people. It's, com- it's communicating the intentionality and the forcefulness of it. Not that Jesus was unwilling, but that it was so necessary. This was no accident. He was sent into the wilderness to be tempted. And so, whereas the other gospel writers, they spell out temptations and they, and they, and they record interchanges between Jesus and the devil, Mark doesn't do that here. He simply says he was driven into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. What Mark wants us to understand is that this entire period, this 40-day period, was a protracted period of difficulty for Jesus. And it was necessary that he be driven out into the wild to do battle with the devil Precisely because now, as our mediator, he has just assumed the mantle of responsibility, now he needs to be tested and tried, just as every other mediator had been. You may think about Adam, for example. After he was created, he was given a test. And in his case, he had idyllic conditions. He had the garden He had everything he could desire, and he was master over all of the animals. And he failed in a moment. Moses, he failed at the rock. Israel, in their 40 years of wandering, they failed. David, he failed on that rooftop. And oh, What's this guy going to do? He goes out into the wilderness and he battles the forces of Satan. And the use of the phrase wild animals, it's highlighting the fact that he's in a dangerous situation. He's in a hostile environment. It's referring to like hyenas and jackals and lions. The kind of animals you don't want to be around in the middle of nowhere when you're by yourself, unarmed. Jesus is out there engaging in the conflict that we can't. Now, this fundamentally reframes the nature of our problem. We are so often thinking in terms of, oh, my spouse is the problem, or my boss is the problem, or my political leaders, or, 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 or you know, the Russians are the problem, the, the ISIS is the problem. And Jesus is out here doing battle with our enemy. Our problem is primarily spiritual. And so what Jesus does in his opening action of going out and being tested and tried is he's modeling for us the nature and framing for us our understanding of the conflict. It is spiritual. And his followers and his opponents never do grasp that, do they? They keep thinking that it's going to be physical and of this world. But Jesus wants to go far deeper than his concern about where a particular nation state draws their borders. He wants the whole earth. And it's cosmic in scope. And so the enemy, who's a cosmic enemy, must be confronted. So Jesus comes and he succeeds where Adam, where Moses, where the Israelites, where David, indeed where every single one of us fail. He succeeds in resisting the devil. Now, the 
Greek word that's translated temptation also means, can be translated as testing. So you may remember a few weeks ago when we were in Philippians, I said it's the same word that can be translated worry or just concern. So when is something worry and when is something concern? Well, in the same way, when is something temptation and when is it a test? All right? How is the Son of God tempted to sin? Let's just ask the question. That's a hard one because God cannot be tempted. The Bible tells us that. But yet we're told that Jesus was tempted in every way we were, and yet without sin. The best that I can say is that Jesus, not relying on his deity, but in the strength of his own humanity, successfully resisted the temptations from the devil. And it was necessary that he do so because, again, he was doing it on our behalf. Adam had been tested and had been found wanting. But now that Jesus was our representative, he had to do open conflict, and he passed. And so we see that the nature of the conflict then is spiritual. We have a problem, though, oftentimes in reform circles, thinking of the problem the way Jesus seems to address it here. See, we rightly emphasize that we have a sin problem. We resonate with the first part of what Jesus did. You know, he had to be baptized because we're all guilty sinners and we can't repent perfectly. So we need to be baptized. He needs to repent for us. Great. We get that. We have a hard time, though, with taking the devil seriously in our, in our reform circles. We do. I mean, charismatics, I think they err in thinking the devil's behind every cold they get. You know, they stub their toe in the night and they think that the devil tripped them or something. Um, that's, that's wrong, too. But the devil is in Scripture presented as an adversary who enslaves the world. And Jesus came to do battle and to free us from satanic forces. In fact, in 1 John 3, 8, we're specifically told, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then in Acts 10, 38, when Peter is doing a sermon in which he's summarizing the ministry of Jesus. He talks about Jesus after he's baptized and after he gets anointed by the Holy Spirit. He goes about doing good, and I've always loved that phrase. He's doing good. And healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And even the Heidelberg Catechism, which is not our immediate confession of faith, but it certainly is a... a a, a resonant one that, that we agree with. But the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism includes in its answer, when it's talking about all that Jesus has done for us, it talks about how Jesus has fully satisfied for all of our sins and freed us from all the power of the devil. So, in these verses, what we see Jesus doing is bracketing, the opening bracket of his ministry where he assumes the mantle of responsibility and he receives God's approval and affirmation. He successfully fires an opening volley against the devil. He resists the devil's temptations and we know he's approved by God because the angels minister to him. And this starts his ministry. And it's on the basis of this 
that everything happens all the way up until that next bracket, which we read about at the end of 15. And this underscores our problem. Jesus had to be baptized because we're sinners. You can't even repent adequately. And because of our sin, we are in, under in the enslavement of the devil, under the tyranny of Satan, who rules this world as a dark and terrible master. And Jesus and his ministry and his, all of his actions that he's going to do are geared towards absolving our sin and liberating us, delivering us from the powers of hell. That is your biggest problem and need. There may be some of you in here who have been trusting in Jesus your whole life. Praise God for that. There may be some in here who are living under the tyranny of the devil. There may be some in here who have not tasted the freedom that comes from knowing your sins have been washed away. This is what Jesus comes to do. This is your greatest need, and it is his first act as our mediator to set the stage for our problem and the cure. So, who do you say that Jesus is? According to God the Father, he's his beloved Son in whom he's well pleased. So having been affirmed as the Son of God, we're reminded then of Psalm 2 which echoes these words that the Father is pleased with His Son. And when it comes to, well, how should we respond to this Son? We close with the closing words of Psalm 2, which read, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all, who take refuge in Him. Brothers and sisters, the Son of God has come. The heavens were rent. The Spirit of God came down. The battle was joined. Nothing is the same. How will you respond to the Son of God? Let's pray.